Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, sitting in for Bill Nygut. President Joe Biden visited Oklahoma yesterday to mark the 100 years since the Tulsa race massacre. That was when, over the course of two days, an armed and violent group of white residents attacked the Greenwood District of Tulsa, a thriving community known as Black Wall Street. The white mob burned the neighborhood, destroying up to 40 blocks, killed as many as as 300 black Tulsans, and displaced 10,000 more. A hundred years later, the president's visit was noteworthy and a symbol of his administration's pledged commitment to racial justice. How are he and others proposing to right past wrongs? And what parallels might we see here in Georgia? We'll talk about Tulsa, the latest from Fulton County, and a whole lot more on today's show. I have an excellent panel joining me to help me break down all of this, starting with Dr. Andre Gillespie, political science professor and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. Hey, Dr. Gillespie. Good morning. How are you? Good. We were saying before the show, you are everywhere all the time these days. Can't open up a story in the Washington Post or the New York Times without seeing you quoted. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Congratulations. Next, we have Dr. Amy Steigerwald, a political science professor at Georgia State University, who's on her summer break and starting a book on dissent uh, on the Supreme Court. Do I have that right? Yes, we, we, we wrote about unanimity and now decided that we should talk about the, uh, the converse when they disagree and why. Next, we have Fred Smith, a constitutional law professor at Emory University, who is working on a project that I think fits perfectly into dis- today's discussion about how, let me make sure I'm describing this right, Fred, how you remediate crimes if the victim has already died. Absolutely right. And it was an especial emphasis on uh, crimes, that, mass horrors that took place long ago um, and, uh, and ones that have um, that we're attempting to uh, perpetuate uh, injustices and, uh, and subordination and caps. I'm trying not to use academic terms, but they're just coming, they're just coming <laughs> out, but I'll do better during the discussion. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for being here. And last but not least, we have Stephen Fowler, a politics reporter here at GPB News. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And I'd like to start with you, Stephen. Um, and let's talk about the symbolism of President Biden's visit to Tulsa. He was the first time a this was the first time a U.S. president visited Greenwood to mark the anniversary of the of the massacre. And what does that tell us about the president and his priorities right now? Well, you know, it is significant. There have been a lot of despicable things and tragedies in American history that uh, you might read about in history books. And this hasn't really been one of them. And so it's significant that, you know, Joe Biden is there. He's not only there, but he's making, you know, considerable policy pronouncements that he wants to discuss from voting rights to closing the racial wealth gap. And it kind of signifies that, uh, you know, he is really trying to do his best to unify the country, but unifying the country isn't just putting the blinders on and pretending the past didn't happen. I mean, this is an uncomfortable pronouncement that the president is making by acknowledging this you know, part of history that doesn't get talked about and really has had 
dramatic implications for not just Tulsa, but for black Americans across the country. And, you know, he's using it as not uh, cudgel is maybe the wrong word, but he's using this moment as a tool to really draw a line in the sand for federal voting rights and to try to urge Congress into action on that. And so I think that's one of the significant things about his uh, speech. And before we talk about some of the things the president is hoping to do uh, with executive actions, but also with Congress, Andra, let's kind of back up here. Stephen hinted at this. This massacre was largely minimized or omitted entirely from history books. And even residents of, of Tulsa avoided, avoided talking about this openly for decades. Why is that? Um, well, there are lots of things. So one of it is white privilege. And I think we have to be really honest. So people who are in power... Um, and who benefited from this right um, have the authority to write the narrative. And so they chose to write it out of the narrative because they wouldn't want anything that might make them look bad or might call into question the legitimacy um, of, of their power. Um, that's part of what racism is. Um, so racism is getting being able to control the narrative and to try to pretend that, you know, whites didn't do anything, that they didn't see uh, power or land or authority or people's bodies. Um, unfairly or in an unjust kind of way. Um, and so, and it's those types of narratives that tended to, you know, make black people look bad, pathological and deficient that were used in some ways to justify and to rationalize um, really heinous, unjust uh, types of actions uh, that were taken against them personally and in broader systemic ways. Um, and if, you know, it's not part of the historical record, then you can't call into question whether or not systems like Jim Crow, for instance, or even its successor systems are actually allowed to persist, right, because there is no problem. So this is just some individual stuff that really has to do with the people involved and not necessarily the larger society. Sure. And at the same time, maybe for black residents, there was especially early on in the 20th century, there was probably a fear that you could be attacked again if you were openly talking about this all the time and already after such loss and pain and destruction. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and, and, and that type of system is also important. Right. Because that's informal. But that informal system is, in fact, very real and has the power of something that would be formally codified in an institution. Brad, I'd like to bring you into this discussion as well. Um, all of this kind of started because there was a, a teenage black shoe shiner who I guess rode in an elevator with a white woman who screamed. And, you know, afterwards, the case was, was almost immediately dropped. Insurance claims were denied against a lot of these black families because the, these companies said there were exemptions for riots. The city promised it would help rebuild Greenwood. It didn't do that. Um, let's kind of talk about the institutions that were involved in all of this and how much uh, so much of this is unresolved to this day. Sure. Right. So um, as is often the case, um, when you kind of pause to think, well, what institutional actors were involved here? Um, yes, it was government. It was uh, insurance companies. It was uh, a number of uh, major institutions with power. Um, I think as we think about what took place, um, and uh, there is a temptation and uh, perhaps even a necessity to connect it to the injustices of today. Uh, to, to, but I also think it's important to take the time um, to really actually figure out, well, what, what's owed to the people who literally experience the horror? Um, not even what's owed to the descendants, what's owed to the literal individuals um, who experienced the horror, right? When 
Um, when someone is uh, is murdered and uh, there's a murder trial, right? Um, you know, people say it's important that we get justice for that person, right? When we, we see people who hold signs, justice for uh, Breonna Taylor. Um, everyone also knows um, that uh, there, there seems to be there is a common um, cultural intuition that when you go to a graveyard, for example, that, that when something that you don't do um, is uh, is desecrated, right? Um, it's illegal uh, to do so, right? Um, and so if those two things are true, right, then one might ask, well, what do we do um, when it comes to um, people who experienced mass horror long ago, who never experienced anything resembling a remedy? Um, how do we um, do an adequate job of declaring that the wrong took place, um, of elevating their names, of elevating their memories, and hoping to create the world that would exist if their will had not been suppressed? Um, and, uh, and, and I think those are important questions, uh, uh, whether it be Tulsa or Forsyth County. Um, those are, are, are tremendously important questions. Yeah. And and before we start pivoting to Georgia, I mean, what can be done for these living people who actually live through it? All these people are in their hundreds. You know, there's there's one 107 year old resident who um, who testified before Congress earlier this month. And there's only so much time left. So based on your research, is there much that can be done at this point or is it all about kind of making sure their descendants are, are in a better position? Well, for the for the individuals who are alive, then surely um, I, I think. It's, it's important that there be material support for the individuals who, um, who are alive. Um, that does need to be a part of the story. Um, I mean, I think that uh, I'm just emphasizing that as well. The people who passed away, that, for example, there's a mass grave in Tulsa, et cetera. I'm just emphasizing that, that, that they need to be a part of the story, too. For those who are alive, yes, listening to we have a particular opportunity in, uh, to, to listen to um, their stories, uh, to listen to the world that they were trying to create. Um, and for those who are uh, so moved um, to, uh, to attempt to, to, in fact, build uh, that world. And I think about what institutions we can, to, can, they can put into place um, to, to build the world that they were trying to build before their dreams were destroyed. And Amy, it, it often takes government especially in this country, a long time sometimes to come around to admit wrongdoing or to even admit that something happened. Um, only recently we saw Congress acknowledge the Armenian genocide that also happened 100 years ago. Why does it take so long sometimes for, for the official wheels of government to, to even just acknowledge that something happened? Well, I mean, to bring it back to the point Andra made, I mean, a lot of it has to do with power, right? It's keeping that power. It is also not... Um, wanting sometimes to acknowledge how it is that that power, whether it's white power or in other places, right, is is built, right? Because many times people gain power not because they acted sort of on their own, but because they acted against others and then were able to benefit in really important ways and having to um, sort of acknowledge, right, that I'm doing okay and in part I'm doing okay because somebody else suffered greatly is a really difficult thing to do, right? That type of acknowledgement of that type of remembrance to think it through. Um, New York Times did this amazing infographic that you can go through to sort of rebuild, right, what sort of Greenwood looked like before and after the race massacre. And I mean, it was literally leveled, 
right? 10,000 people, right? Almost everyone who lived there locked where they lived, right? They were homeless. All of these, right, this one block had 70 different restaurants and looked thriving and looked amazing. And I wanted to go to the confectionery and it was gone all in a 24-hour period. And the thing is, though, that then after that, other people got to move in and they could claim that space and they could build something. And to have to acknowledge that they were able to build something there because somebody else was killed, destroyed, massacred, right? that's a really tough thing for people to do. So therefore, we kind of want to wash it away. But the problem is, sort of getting back to Fred's point, is that when we do that, we're also, we're missing the lens of where it's coming in. We're not sort of taking care on that, but it also means that those wounds fester. Um, President Biden yesterday, I thought the sort of most, what I was really struck by that he said is he said, I came here to help fill the silence because in silence, wounds deepen. As painful as it is, only in remembrance do wounds heal, right? We can't truly move forward until we acknowledge what occurred, right? That we acknowledge that People were shot indiscriminately simply because they were walking down the street and were black. That's a really tough thing to kind of handle and move past. And so it means that, you know, same thing in Congress, that you've got sort of these differing sides of people who don't want to acknowledge that. Because that also means having to acknowledge, like, maybe maybe I did something wrong. Maybe my parents did something wrong. Maybe my grandparents did something wrong. Maybe the stuff that the ways that I've benefited weren't as sort of great as the family lore would sort of suggest. And while I know you didn't want to bring it to Georgia, we see that a lot really with the story, right? For example, in Forsyth County, where literally every single black resident was right in the early 1900s, completely forced out. And I mean, at least I know when I was growing up here, I mean, everybody knew you couldn't live in Forsyth County and be black. Like that just wasn't a, an option open to you. Right. But that also means that anything that's thriving in Forsyth was in part because an entire group of people, right, that is a not insignificant proportion of the Georgia population, were completely kept out and blocked from that. And having to acknowledge that, right, to say, like, I'm succeeding in part because I've kept all these other people out is something that people really suffer with. Yeah. And I'll just say quick, oh, go ahead, Fred. Quickly, I'll just add on to that, right, the property that was owned in Forsyth County by, by black folks, um, the de- the names of the deeds were changed into the names of uh, of, of white folks, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know that that's just um, adding to your point in terms of kind of how to think about, um, you know, where affluence in some pockets of where it comes from. Absolutely, and and definitely talking about the economic aspect and um, kind of the the wealth that was lost when it comes to passing down, um, you know, homes and that sort of thing is something that that the president is definitely talking about with his proposals. And I want to get to that in a minute. But before we do, Amy kind of teed this up for us a little bit. You know, what happened in Tulsa was no anomaly, especially across the South. We obviously had what happened in, in Forsyth County, where white mobs destroyed black churches and businesses, eventually driving the entire black population out of the county. Uh, we had uh, a, a riot in Camilla in 1868. But Andra, I really want to spend a few minutes talking about what happened in Atlanta in 1906. Um, and there's a real role in the media here. Newspapers like the Atlanta Journal, the Atlanta Constitution, where racial tensions were already at a high, um, having to do with a lot of economic issues, a lot of folks, black and white, moving into Atlanta. 
all competing against each other for uh, lower wage jobs. And then you have once again, like in Tulsa, um, and you know, an allegation that a young black man, um, you know, might have assaulted a, a white woman. In this case, four white women. And you had a white mob descend on black-owned businesses on Decatur Street and start destroying them. Um, what do we know about what happened in Atlanta, and what sort of parallels can we draw here? So it's funny, when I teach this um, in, in my African-American politics class regularly, like when I cite things that targeted middle-class blacks, because there's this big uh, interest in, in, in African-American politics among scholars about why middle-class blacks and poor blacks are aligned politically um, when their, their economic sort of interests seem to be very different. And it's this idea that just because somebody had any modicum of wealth, um, didn't spare you from the horrors of racism and racial violence in particular. So, uh, you know, I've talked about Atlanta. I've talked about Tulsa uh, for years, and the parallels are uncanny in this particular situation. Um, so what we see happening in Atlanta is, again, the same story of allegations that a white woman's honor was, was dismerged, uh, uh, gin up a lot of, you know, anger and support, and thus you have the violent white mob that is justified in going to avenge this white woman's honor, or in, in, in Atlanta's case, it was uh, four alleged rapes uh, to go and, and, and target um, black folks. The people who get targeted tend to be affluent. So one of the businesses in particular that was targeted was Alonzo Herndon's Bible uh, barber shop. Um, and so if you don't know who the Herndon family is, they're the ones that created Atlanta Life. So the, the big black insurance company um, you know, in the city of Atlanta, Georgia State now owns uh, what, was once, what was once the Atlanta Life building um, in town. And so, so you go after what you probably think is the uh, richest black man. If he, and if he wasn't the richest, he was definitely one of the richest black men's businesses in town. So you burn that. Um, and uh, then you go around killing, pillaging people. Um, the other thing is the pop culture. Like, this is the part that I, I hadn't uh, sort of uh, clued into or realized. One of the things, it wasn't just the sensational news headlines. Um, it was also pop culture. So um, there had actually been a showing, apparently, sort of based on my, my, my online reading, of uh, The Klansman, Thomas Dixon's The Klansman. It was a series of novels glorifying the Klan, which was the basis of Birth of the Nation. Um, and so... There are these people who are riled up, you know, you know, sort of in support of white supremacy because they've just watched this play that's glorifying it. And now they have an opportunity to act based on these allegations sort of of the rape of a white woman. And then they go after the black businesses and the aftermath of um, of, of the Atlanta race riots was a hardening of segregation lines. So what ends up happening is, you know, the stark segregation that we think of today really gets hardened after 1906. So people are like, there's no way that like blacks and whites can actually be together. And so that ends up creating something like the Sweet Auburn District where everybody congregates. And so people look at that as, well, wow, that's black businesses, that's black churches, that's the cradle of the civil rights movement. Um, so, but, you know, at the same time, you're actually circumscribing people to distinct areas, so whether it's Sweet Auburn or whether it's the West End. And then we can think about subsequent policies that made those um, neighborhoods pre-gentrification, and we could talk about the racial elements of gentrification, more disadvantaged, having less wealth than others. The same thing happens in Greenwood. So, you know, in Greenwood, what if you go to Tulsa now, 
um, what is now that Greenwood district, what is Black Wall Street, is substantially smaller than what it was in 1921 before the massacre. And this is what people have to own and people have to understand that these are not isolated incidents. They're, that these are happening across the country and the effects are long lasting and then are tied into other policies, which we as a society and as a government actually have to own our role in actually helping to exacerbate and solidify what the intended effects were in the first place. And Stephen, when, you know, these riots happened in Atlanta in 1906, we were in the middle of a governor's race. We had Hoke Smith running and he was using his position as a a top person on the paper um, to help further his platform. Talk about that and and a little more. Andre talked about this a little bit about how it kind of further led, led to a tightening of Jim Crow laws after that. Right. So, you know, the two leading gubernatorial candidates in that election were Hoke Smith and Clark Howell. One ran the Atlanta Journal, one ran the Atlanta Constitution. And it was kind of a race to the bottom of pushing this platform of, you know, disenfranchisement of black Georgians. You know, one of the headlines in the journal at the time, you know, said that uh, they were mocking the Constitution because the Constitution wasn't unable to understand why it was that we wished a legal disenfranchisement of 223,000 male Negroes of voting age in Georgia. And so you have the front page of these papers openly campaigning for active black disenfranchisement. And I mean, it's important to talk about the role of institutions and the role of government because Hoke Smith, when he was elected, enacted these strict laws that really decimated black franchise in Georgia for decades. But he also did a number of other things and is hailed as a progressive reformer in Georgia. And if you, you know, go look at the New Georgia Encyclopedia, you know, the footnote at the bottom says, if it weren't for the racism, he did all of these other great things. And it's, you know, it's, it's a story of who has their stories told and how. Because if you look at one form of history, you know, Hoke Smith is this massive progressive reformer that did a lot to help Georgia. But on the other hand, there's not as much mentioned about how he really kicked off more than half a century of black disenfranchisement in Georgia. And that was his main party platform. So in the context of Greenwood, in the context of the Atlanta race riot, it's important to remember that not only do you have communities destroyed, livelihoods destroyed, wealth destroyed, but really that voice in staking that flag in history that gets destroyed as well. So it's really incumbent on us to acknowledge the past and acknowledge the full context of how we are where we are. And Fred, you know, the what was happening in Atlanta, it took place over several days and authorities were very slow to stop a lot of the violence that was occurring each day. And it really only happened after what was happening got really broad press attention way outside of Atlanta. And, and authorities were worried it was hit, hurting the city's image as kind of the new south. Sure. Right. There's so much to say on this, on the new south theme. Um, I mean, I think it's we certainly, I think, as a city, are at a moment um, in which some of our New South heroes, um, we, uh, we're, we're taking a more holistic view um, of, uh, of their actions and their words um, and the policies that they support it. Um, and, uh, and it's a difficult uh, conversation. I live across the street from Grady High School, or, well, sorry, from Midtown High School. Um, and, uh, and so, I, you know, I, I just sort of looking at, at that that symbol um, and, uh, and 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 that particular figure, um, you know, obviously that was um, uh, a couple of decades earlier um, when he made his mark. Um, but it's that that's a part of the same um, story. Um, but the other the other thing that you just hit on is the way in which uh, in Atlanta we do care about we care what company thinks about us 
um, and about what we look like. Um, and, uh, and, and that was true in the early 1900s uh, when W.E.B. Du Bois uh, wrote about how um, the thing that seemed to keep black folks and white folks in, in relative peace in Atlanta was uh, their love of the almighty dollar. Um, and uh, and it, it was true uh, during uh, the civil rights movement um, as well. And, and, of course, we're all familiar with Mayor Hartsfield's uh, famous quote um, that he borrowed from, um, from someone uh, around the city too busy to hate. And I, so I spent a lot of time thinking about how, though, that has – Atlanta's ability to forget has had advantages. Um, its desire to run as fast as it can from its horrors such that it can't – that it doesn't remember them, that it whitewashes them. Um, that it, it's, not even, it's not even always horrors of the sort we're talking about. We don't even – uh, we we barely remember our tornado ten years ago. <laughs> like, just, we don't, we don't like talking about bad things, and it has its advantages. Um, and for me, it's, it's interesting because there are cities that have kind of um, owned um, their horrors more across the world. Places like Berlin, and I do sometimes wonder what does it mean to love a city that owes its progress in part to forgetting, like Atlanta. And, but what does it mean um, to love a city that owes its progress in part? Um, to a, to remembering, like Berlin, it is possible to thrive and remember. All right. We've got to take a break, but when we come back, we'll talk about some of the proposals that have been floating around to try and rectify the situation. This is Political Rewind. We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, filling in for Bill Nygut. I'm joined today by professors Fred Smith, Andre Gillespie, and Amy Steigerwald, plus GPB's own political reporter Stephen Fowler. Now let's jump back in. Um, Amy, there's lots of talk about what can be done to help rectify what happened in places like Tulsa, in Atlanta, really everywhere where just especially the wealth gap between black and white is just so stark. A figure being circulated by the White House yesterday was that the median black American family has 13 cents for every one dollar in wealth held by white families. Um, And there's kind of two buckets where I'd like to talk about this discussion so, Amy, let's talk. Let's start by talking about some executive orders and things that Biden is hoping to do within the administration to, to kind of help rectify the situation. One of the proposals is to um, allow for more federal spending on small and minority-owned businesses, to boost fair housing protections, and to the, repair the damage for neighborhoods bulldozed or divided by highway projects, and also to help spur black home ownership. Um, summarizing this, what do you think the Biden administration is trying to do and how much can this actually help rectify generations, generation upon generation of of inequality? So on the one hand, the question of how much can it rectify it is an excellent open question because we're not entirely sure, right? Sort of numbers range. And some of the problem is, is that it can't sort of be solved overnight because the inequities are so large. So um, sort of recent numbers are that sort of the average sort of white household that I think the current numbers are that they're like the sort of average amount of sort of wealth that they've got is somewhere around 150,000 compared to 24,000 for blacks, right? That's a massive inequality that simply can't be erased and ties back to sort of all of the various topics that we've been discussing. Um, But what many of these can do is try to start and to perhaps sort of change it for the future, because I think maybe partly, and sorry, as the academic, I'm going to take a step back, that it's important to sort of understand that 
these issues compound over time, right? You lose the family farm, you lose the business, and so now the next year you're, you're at zero, right? But if somebody else, right, if you started at 10 and now you're at zero, you've got to build back up. But if the other person's at 10, that next year they get to go to 12 and 15, whereas you're at one, two, and so it really causes it to magnify them. So these are all sort of long-term effects that we're trying to do. But I think what it really goes into is that sort of the part that we, we've, we've hinted at, um, and it's sort of been discussed, but I want to sort of make sort of explicit, is that a lot of this is also a function of policies that were put in place, some of which still stand today, which have really sort of reified and reinforced these issues, such as difficulties in being able to get loans, because one of the things that gets looked at is your debt to income ratio. The higher your debt, right, as compared to what your income is, the harder it is for you to be able to get sort of future loans, for example, to start a business. Well, if you have incredibly large student loans and no income, then how do you get that money to be able to start a business? Um, there's sort of a joke that the Wall Street Journal will every so often have a little segment that's called How I Did It about like some young person who buys a super fancy house. And inevitably the story, right, they sort of have these stuff and then down in it, the story is my parents bought it for me. Well, your parents have to have that money to be able to buy it for you. And so that's where this comes in. So the types of issues that are being talked about, one of the ones that I know the NAACP has particularly emphasized is erasing sort of student debt, uh, particularly up to that, you know, hopefully, you know, 50000 uh, dollars, if not more, because that can have such a culminating effect over time, right? The higher your debt is, particularly when you first get out of college, it sort of doesn't matter how much money you make because you, you are still, you're continually paying that off. Whereas somebody who comes out and is debt free is again, sort of starting at a different place. Um, this is also similar to the policy that we saw very uh, recently that Senator Warnock uh, was really one of the people that spearheaded was about the loans for black farmers, right, to again sort of rectify the fact that the USDA has, has given out loans uh, throughout the years and only given about 1% of them ever to black farmers, right? We sort of see very consistent. Um, it's mortgage companies uh, not giving the same loans or the same opportunities or the same interest rates. And so a lot of these are policies trying to get at that, but some of the problem then becomes that there is both the, what we call sort of de jure issues, right? So what's in law, and then there's what happens de facto. So you are not allowed to legally treat black and white homeowners differently, right, if you are a company. However, we also know, as came out last year, right, in sort of big exposés, that many of the uh, banks that exist have done so no matter what. Right, that the difference that they're sort of beliefs of what, what makes a good customer, and that also has systematically sort of put whites in one camp and blacks or Latinos uh, or Asians in another. And so all of that becomes reified. And so it's these little incremental things. So I'm, it can make sense, but the idea is it going to change everything overnight? Definitely not, right? We're talking about sort of taking steps now so that 30, 40 years from now, those numbers, when we look back at the, you know, the household disparities have shrunk. Andra? So, you know, not to put a shameless plug in for my book, but I am. 
Um, so in my last book, which looked at what Obama did for, uh, you know, with respect to African-Americans in particular, called Race in the Obama Administration, one of the things that I try to chart is certain key measures that would look at black well-being relative to white well-being and to look at sort of whether or not inequalities were narrowing. So lots of the things that we were looking at in terms of health, um, in terms of, uh, you know, income, in terms of home ownership rates. A lot of these things, the gaps remained pretty persistent over time. And in fact, actually, with respect to home ownership, towards the end of the Obama administration, you could start to see the Latino home ownership rate going up, kind of rebounding from the crash um, at the end of uh, the aughts, and Blacks hadn't quite taken off yet. So some of these things are in part Joe Biden, either consciously or unconsciously, trying to build upon or rectify things that uh, he wasn't able to do or that his uh, uh, president, when he was serving as vice president, wasn't able to do. But in terms of the structural things that Amy is talking about, there are certain policy debates now that people don't understand have racial overtones. So, for instance, redlining, one of the things that got districts redlined where blacks happened to live was the fact that they uh, didn't live in single-family homes or homes that were on single-family lots. So if you had contiguous housing, that made it undesirable for renting. And so when you hear current debates about zoning that want to sort of preclude uh, sort of new single-family lots in favor of contiguous housing, in part to support density, it's more environmentally friendly and other types of things, there's also a racial equity kind of issue with that as well. Because these smaller houses may be folks starter houses, and especially for people who are coming in with less income who want to be in a desirable part of town so that they can actually get equity. Because even though redlining is illegal in the United States, right, the neighborhoods that got redlined 75 years ago are the neighborhoods where you have depressed home values and where you don't get the same type of bang for your buck in terms of equity today. So we've got to figure out kind of how to stabilize some of that. And this is one of the ways that this could happen by actually being really sort of intentional about making sure that we don't keep on doing the same things that just continually perpetuated and kept certain groups ahead for no reason other than the color of their skin. Stephen, Democrats and President Biden have been under increasing pressure to support uh, reparations, uh, either for victims of the the Tulsa massacre or for African-Americans more broadly based on slavery and decades upon decades of racist government policies. Uh, The president so far has mentioned his support for studying the issue, but he hasn't endorsed it outright. Let's talk about that issue and whether you think it it could see any new um, boost after this 100th anniversary in Tulsa. Well, I think, you know, what we're seeing is very limited action on a number of things because of the divided nature of government and because of the president's uh, unwillingness to use executive action in the same way that maybe some of his predecessors have. And so I think the main takeaway from yesterday and his comments in Tulsa is more on the voting rights angle of things, you know, tapping the vice president to add that to her portfolio and of urging senators to take action, you know, urging them to do things. But I, I think, you know, it seems unlikely that it's something that's going to move forward beyond a study committee because you know, government is so divided right now. And, you know, he can't get infrastructure done necessarily. He can't get any of these other things done. So putting a controversial topic like reparations on the agenda and expecting anything be, even the study committee does seem like a bit of a pipe dream with the way things are going. But, you know, I I think it's something that is going to potentially happen. But I mean, President Biden is never going to be able to 
go as far as progressives want him to go. And I think on the scale of legislative agenda, even with the uh, anniversary coming and even with the speech and everything, I think it's something much lower on the totem pole of likely to happen. Fred, you talked about the survivors of, of the Tulsa massacre and just as a starting point to hear their stories, but especially as we're talking about their descendants and what can be done to help kind of rebuild some of that lost wealth and standing. Anything based on your research that you think could be particularly helpful? Um, well, I actually will uh, mention my colleague Dorothy Brown's book, The Whiteness of Wealth, um, which uh, kind of describes um, these income, these wealth gaps that we're familiar with, and also talks about the role of the tax code um, in perpetuating those. And um, she suggests uh, some uh, potentially important um, fixes to the tax code uh, in order to kind of stop perpetuating um, uh, racial injustices in, in that particular um, sphere. Um, and you know, I, this is gonna—it's it's gonna sound odd that I keep returning, and, and it may be just because when you have a hammer, everything's a nail. So that's why I think that's why right now mentally I keep returning to this. But I, you know, I would, I would, I think that uh, it could be palatable um, to have a federal law that protects, uh, for example, grave sites um, of of slaves and other victims of mass horror that have been uh, neglected. Um, and some of this goes to what Stephen was uh, was talking about earlier um, when uh, when he said, "Well, wh- who is it that whose whose memories are we honoring? Whose memories are we remembering?" Um, because when there's a to me when there's a colossal gap uh, in whose memories we're honoring and remembering, then we're already from the outset we're being complicit in mass horror. Um, and I think that um, both from a practical standpoint um, and, and also. Um, from a moral standpoint, um, that taking the time to do that and to protect them will, may help show us the way um, in terms of what to do um, for the descendants. And the reason why this is important, I, I grew up in the, I grew up in Athens, Georgia. I grew up, I, I uh, spent my senior year of high school at the University of Georgia. My dad went to grad school at the University of Georgia, a, a school that was built by slaves, right? Um, I benefited. I benefited. Um, by going to a school that was built on free labor. Um, the, and, and I think that there's a way in which uh, some, some, I want to be careful here, but I think that there is a way in which we're all in the same story um, where we, the living, um, are uh, in some ways uh, benefiting from horrors that took place uh, long ago, and we need to look at them. Um, and sometimes, you know, everyone didn't benefit equally, and everyone didn't benefit in the same way. And those nuances are are, are really important, and the racial wealth gaps make that evident. Um, but I think uh, the conversations that allow us to think more about we, um, what what we collectively um, owe to one another, and what we collectively uh, and universally owe to people who experienced these horrors in the past. Um, is, uh, among other things, again, I think it's the, the, the spiritual, spiritual correct thing to do, but I also think um, it's a, a practical way of talking about these issues. Amy, Stephen brought this up briefly, but he talked about how we saw um, President Biden yesterday during his appearance in Tulsa really put the pressure on 
specifically Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Cinema, uh, when it comes to voting rights, you know, the Senate has been debating HR one, the, the For the People Act, which would be a, a dramatic overhaul of the way that the country administers its election system. Um, obviously, Republicans have the votes to be able to block it for the moment, but these Democrats uh, in the center are under increased pressure to to blow up the filibuster so that Democrats can get huge proposals like that through. Yes, definitely. So one of the things, we've got a couple of different things that are going on. So on the one hand, we've got, right, a lot of sort of polarization. Um, Alan Abramowitz, who is on here uh, quite frequently, sort of talks about the fact that that is growing even more in sort of those outskirts. And then we also see that sort of gerrymandering and the drawing of legislative districts has led members to be even more uh, sort of separated from to the extremes, right? We don't have a lot of districts left um, particularly in, in the House that are sort of these middle-of-the-road uh, ones where they're sort of purplish, right? Rather, they're usually very red or, or very blue. And even within the Senate, we've sort of seen really a diversion of, of the states, right? There, there's not as many that are there. But then what it also leads to is the fact that in the Senate, you have the filibuster. Um, I will say I want to sort of take a moment and sort of make sure that everybody is clear on this. There is not a filibuster going on right now. There was a vote. There was a hold that sort of blocked it. And then there was a decision by the majority leader, who's a Democrat, to say, okay, we're not gonna do anything else. A filibuster is when literally debate doesn't stop. You have to block it, and then you have to maintain the floor. And it's public, and it's long, and it keeps going until basically you give up, or you collapse, or you decide you have to go to the bathroom, because you're not allowed to leave the floor to be able to go to the bathroom. That's not what's going on right now. Right. Instead, it's really just a simple sort of vote and then everybody is moving on. And the reason that that's super important is it actually makes it much easier to block things by not forcing people to actually filibuster, to instead basically sort of saying, we're going to allow your objection to stand and we're going to move on to other things. Right. I don't want to tie up the Senate floor. I don't want to have to spend time on this means that it's much easier. This started back actually when. Uh, Senator Frist was majority leader well back during the George W. Bush era and allowed a bunch of nominees to be thing. And so part of what that also makes it difficult is, is it gives sort of, again, more power right to these who are in the middle. And it also doesn't, it means that most people, including possibly most senators, are not really aware of kind of what's the effect of the filibuster, of where it's sticking out, of where it goes in. And this question of what does it mean to either get rid of it or simply to say, have an actual filibuster, right? Because that's a very different thing than what we're seeing right now. There is not a filibuster right now. There was a vote, the vote lost. That's a very different thing than a filibuster. Um, and so when we talk about blowing up the filibuster, right? Blowing up that 40 people can block 60 doesn't seem like such a big deal, right? That's not what we're talking about, though, right? So we sort of conflate these things, and I think that's an important part also that Biden is going to have to confront as it goes on. All right, Amy, you get the last word for this segment. We're going to have to get to our final break. When we come back, let's talk to Stephen about what, what's happening in Fulton County, and I'm hoping to chat with Dr. Gillespie about this fight over critical race theory. You're listening to Political Rewind. We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, standing in for Bill Nygut. Our panel today is Amy Steigerwald, Andra Gillespie, Fred Smith, and Stephen Fowler. Stephen, um, 
since you're here today, since you are our resident voting expert, I'd like for you to catch us up on what the heck is going on in Fulton County. On Saturday, a security alarm went off at a warehouse that was storing ballots from the 2020 presidential election. Now we have former President Trump and his allies talking about something nefarious that might have gone on. What happened? What do we know? What don't we know? Right. So first to back it up, there is a lawsuit that was filed that claims Fulton County had counterfeit absentee ballots, that somehow fake ballots made it in and it needs to be investigated. Uh, For the longest time, that case flew under the radar. Nobody filed a motion to dismiss. And it got all the way to the judge saying, yes, let's we'll allow you through the discovery process to scan these ballots and scan them again because they said that it wasn't a good enough resolution. That's on hold because now there's a motion to dismiss. They say there's no need for this case. Fulton's ballots and everyone's ballots have been counted three times, et cetera. So in the meantime, uh, Fulton County is guarding the warehouse while this discovery process is going on. Some of the plaintiffs hired a private security firm to also watch the warehouse because they didn't trust Fulton County. Well, through a series of comedy of errors, On Saturday, Fulton Sheriff's deputies left the warehouse early before replacements arrived. An alarm went off in an upstairs office in the Fulton Clerk of Court's office. The off-duty officers that were private security went to go check on the alarm and found an outer door unlocked. They opened it, found nothing was wrong, waited for somebody to come. It got in a garbled game of telephone. There was uh, allegations that the door was just wide open and the ballots were maybe tampered with because it was just unattended and wide open, which isn't necessarily the case. And so it involved all the way up to former President Trump sending out a statement saying that patriots need to go guard the warehouse. But uh, the ballots were never touched. Nobody got in anywhere. They're reviewing security footage, and it looks like uh, somebody left the door unlocked Friday afternoon when they left for work. They still don't know why the alarm went off but said it was a sensitive alarm. But there's basically a false alarm that has been pushed into the latest conspiracy about Georgia's election, which never ends. And um, for some strange reason, after these facts have come out, there haven't been any corrections on sites like creativedestructionmedia.com or the Gateway Pundit. And so the conspiracy lives on. Yeah, Stephen, the election results have been certified. But just as you mentioned, I don't think this is going to do anything to kind of quell the conspiracy minded uh, among us who don't want to believe the election uh, was real. Absolutely not. And the thing about the absentee ballots is you're seeing similar things happening in Arizona. You're seeing potential things happening in Pennsylvania and other places where because there was unprecedented absentee ballot use because of the COVID-19 pandemic, it's something that people are less familiar with. And it's a lot easier to believe something nefarious happened because unlike in-person voting where you can see people voting, it's happening in public. There's things, uh, absentee ballots are done at your kitchen table. And so uh, it makes more sense that there's skepticism about absentee ballots, but that's why we hand counted them. And that's why we counted them the first time. And that's why we recounted them. And they're all the same. And so, you know, it's never going to end, but it's going to be a central fight in the 2022 election. So I'm ready for it to end. (laughs) I don't blame you. Um, We're getting to our last few minutes of this show, but I did want to talk to uh, Dr. Gillespie about 
um, critical race theory. And I wish we could spend the entire show talking about it. I think we absolutely could. But, you know, all of this increased attention on these historic examples of racial violence and their systematic effects um, ties into what we've heard from Republicans, including uh, Governor Kemp, who wants schools to stop teaching uh, in classrooms, basically historical inequities and how racism is shaping public policy. Uh, Your thoughts on that? Um, Well, I mean, I think in general, with all due respect to everybody who keeps on talking about this, most of the people who are uh, critiquing and haranguing critical race theory really have no idea what they're talking about. Um, So point blank, critical race theory is a a particular kind of technique or approach to studying race that was developed uh, amongst legal theorists in the late 80s and 90s. Um, And what it's basically talking about is making sure that we look to see the ways that race and racism kind of affect policies and are kind of interwoven throughout things. In the public discussion of critical race theory, what people are talking about is this idea that we should start to uh, sort of reintroduce concept theories, historical um, facts like the Tulsa massacre into um, the study of American history, and in their view, make white people feel bad for being white, which is not the point of critical race theory. The point um, of critical race theory and of talking about the history of marginalized groups in the United States is to, one, acknowledge that they've been here and acknowledge the ways that they've been treated bad, badly so that we don't make the same mistakes again. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're not going to whitewash history anymore because that sanitized version of history that some of them want to put forward that doesn't talk about things that will euphemize slavery as volunteers or unpaid work uh, that, you know, doesn't mention things like Atlanta or Tulsa, doesn't talk about things like redlining and its effects today are, in fact, revisionist history or revisionist sociology or political science and other kinds of things. And so people who are supporting critical race theory and other racial lenses by which to study this are only talking about let's deal with the things that have happened and and actually not pretend that they didn't happen. At the same time, this has become a top political issue, especially heading into the Republican primary. Um, Stephen, do you think this will be used as kind of the political boogeyman of the cycle, or is this just kind of a passing fad through the news system? It's certainly one of the arrows in the quiver. Um, You know, I read an article this morning about how conservative publishers are struggling to find books against Biden because he's kind of such a boring steady-handed figure. And instead, it's more concepts like critical race theory and cancel culture and other things that have been exciting the Republican base and exciting Trump supporters. And so, you know, I definitely think, along with election integrity, critical race theory, uh, whether people actually understand what it is or not, is definitely going to be one of the things that you'll see play out in 2022 in Georgia and beyond. Fred, I'm going to give you the last word in the show. Well, I mean, people are fond of saying that you can't erase history when it comes to things like Confederate monuments and the like. Uh, That quote seems to be even more apt here uh, when it comes to whether or not we're going to acknowledge and think about and talk about literally the past. All right. Well, you get the last word, Fred. That's all the time we have for Political Rewind today. I'd like to thank our guests, Fred Smith, Dr. Amy Steigerwalt, Dr. Andra Gillespie, and Stephen Fowler from GPB. Tune into Political Rewind tomorrow for a special show. Bill Nygut speaks with author Ronald Brownstein about his new book called Rock Me on the Water, 1974, the year that Los Angeles transformed movies, music, television, and politics. It's sure to be a really interesting conversation. And I'd like to thank producer Sam Bermis dawes senior producer Amelia Brock, and engineer Jesse Nicewanger for their work. I'm Tamar Hallerman. Thank you for joining us, and have a safe rest of your day. 